Hi, this is Tony, and I might jump in right off the top and say we've got a great episode today. It features an amazing Australian, a woman by the name of Jessie Street, Lady Street, who was a pioneering Australian feminist in the 20th century. She was Australia's only female delegate to the founding of the UN, a conference in San Francisco in 1945. She was a suffragette. She was an agitator. She was a voice for change. And we're going to be speaking to her biographer, Lenore Coulthart, about her most famous speech, a speech called Is It To Be Back To The Kitchen, which was delivered as a radio broadcast on the ABC in 1944. I've wanted to do an episode on this speech really since I started the website a few years ago and I discovered this speech for the first time. And that's really been the joy of Speakola for me. It's been like going back to uni. I learned things about amazing people who I often didn't even know existed before I started doing the website and the podcast. And if it's been a bit like that for you, then you can express your gratitude and support. You can become a Patreon subscriber. That's making a monthly contribution of as little as $3 a month to keep us going. Or you can just make a regular or one-off donation with the credit card. Or you can do it non-financially by giving us a five-star review or just telling someone about the podcast. If you choose the Patreon option, I'll put up all the episodes without any spooking from me. So if this is the most annoying part of the podcast, you can skip it just by buying me a cup of coffee every month. Anyway, I thought I'd start the episode with an actual recording of Jesse Street's voice. This one is from the inaugural meeting of the Women's International League of Radio. It was broadcast to an American audience at the time of the setting up of the United Nations in 1945. So here she is, Lady Jessie Street. But now I believe that people really think that there should be no discrimination on account of race, no discrimination on account of colour or on account of sex. We also realise that we can hope to preserve peace in the world only if nations and people are prepared to cooperate in maintaining peace. War springs from definite causes. Among them are greed, oppression and injustice. We were able to win the war in Europe only by the united action and mutual confidence of the United Kingdom, the United States and Russia. And then only after a bitter struggle lasting nearly six years. Without the continued friendship and united action of the three big powers, I do not believe that peace can be maintained. The establishment of peace will entail entail sacrifices and the eradication of the causes of war will take still longer than it took to win the war. But we must never forget again that peace, prosperity and security are indivisible, that we can only attain them by international goodwill and understanding and international cooperation. At San Francisco, we built the structure of the United Nations organization. The governments and peoples of the world must give this structure body and heart and soul. If it is to live and develop and do the work it is intended to do, It must grow strong and powerful, and it will only do so if the people make up their mind that it will be a success. 
It can only be successful by the continued and determined effort of the peoples of the world. We have learnt the lessons in this war of mutual trust and understanding and confidence, and also the lessons of collective action. Let us benefit by these lessons in peace, and then not only may we hope to succeed in maintaining peace and security in the world, but when the peoples of the world are cooperating for this objective, we will know that we cannot fail. Thank you, Mrs. Street. No section of the community is more interested in maintaining peace than women. And meetings of this sort of women's organizations should be held all over the world to foster these ideas. The Women's International Radio League will do all it can via radio to assist in this very good and important work. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Tony Wilson. Welcome to the next edition of the Speakola podcast. I am Tony Wilson, and there was a lengthy introduction there before the theme music. So you know what today's episode is about, and you've heard a little bit of Jesse Street's voice, and how good was that back announce? I had to leave it in just to hear the old-time voice of the Women's International League of Radio Jesse Street's life is so fascinating. It began in India in 1789 and ended in Sydney in 1970. And the things she achieved in those 81 years, she was a suffragette. She was a pioneer of the women's associations in Sydney and Australia in the 1930s. She travelled the world. She went to Nazi Germany. She went to Soviet Russia. She became a voice for women's rights in the workplace, for reproductive rights. She became the delegate, as I said earlier. She was the sole woman in the Australian delegation to found the UN in 1945, and she was a key voice in protecting the rights of women in that original UN charter. In later life, she became a close friend of Indigenous activist and freedom writer Faith Bandler, And the 1967 referendum in Australia, that was part of her doing. She was an activist for constitutional change as early as the late 50s. What a powerhouse, what a life. And the woman who knows more about that life than anyone else in this country is her biographer, Lenore Coltart. She lives in Canberra. She's a retired academic. She was the one charged with rewriting Jesse Street's autobiography, in the early 2000s, and in recent years she has been writing the biography, and she's submitting chapters as I speak. It'll be out in 2022 or 2023, 
So Lenore is our guest interviewee. The feature speech is Jesse Street's Is It To Be Back To The Kitchen from 1944. There's no audio of that one, so it's going to be read by the brilliant Australian thespian, Blazy Best. I loved her read of this beautiful text, and it is there at the end of the episode. Speakola is a one-man show, right down to the editing of the podcast, and I appreciate all the donations and Patreon support I've received in recent times, just as I appreciate the one supporter I've had from the outset. Put out a call in episode one for a sponsor, and the answer came from Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados. They are farmers and producers and lovers of avocados, and they are a place that you can go on the net to learn more about avocados, how you can use them more in your cooking, why they should be at the top of the list when you hit the vegetable aisle at the supermarket. Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados, check them out at greenskinavocados.com.au. Well, I've really been looking forward to doing this speech. Really since Speakola started, I've been fascinated by a speech from 1944 by an Australian icon, really, her name, Jessie Street, and maybe a name that not so many modern Australians are familiar with, but she was a titanic figure. And today's a great opportunity to visit perhaps her most famous speech. And to do that with me, I have author... Ex-academic and current Jesse Street biographer, Lenore Colthart. Thanks for joining us, Lenore. Hi, Tony. Well, is that a, was that introduction right? Is Titanic right? How would you describe the woman you're writing a biography about? I love Titanic, and I was just thinking about the wreck that it all was at the end. <laughs> but I don't think we'll go into that today. <laughs> Well, this speech happened in 1944, and I guess that's sort of mid-life in terms of, of her public life. Can you, Before we get to the speech itself, can you tell us just who Jessie Street was, where she came from, her background, um, her class, all those sorts of things that maybe give the speech a bit of context? Well, one of the reasons why Jessie Street fascinates me is because she is so representative of her time, and it's a time that we've largely forgotten Feminism in Australia in the 1930s was not um, a dirty word and, in fact, uh, uh, feminist activists were really saluted and supported uh, in many ways. For instance, when the Australian Women's Weekly started publication in the 1930s, um, Jessie Street's colleague Linda Littlejohn was one of the chief writers in the Women's Weekly. Both of them broadcast a lot and they, the two women together had started an organisation in 1929 called the United Associations of Women, which was their attempt to link New South Wales organisations of women so that they could then be a state arm for a nationwide group, the Australian Federation of Women Voters. So you can see straight away how Jessie is a kind of lens into this extraordinary activity in this period and at the time of the speech in 1944, we're seeing the the product of it. And yet 20 years later, 30 years later, things had really declined a lot. So I think by looking at the life of Jessie Street, we're looking at, a, at an interesting life of an interesting woman, but we're looking at very interesting times. Well, she was born in 1889, and I think she was actually born in, in India. That's right, isn't it? It was... 
Yes, she was. Her father was a, a, a in the English civil service. He was a forester posted to uh, India. And her mother was one of the eight daughters, one of the ten children, eight daughters, of uh, a landowner in northern New South Wales, um, Edward Ogilvy. So on her father's side, she had a, a British heritage. Her father, who seemed to be a bit pretentious, uh, liked to claim that his family went back to Alfred the Great. And um, on her mother's side, she had this uh, very interesting, very large family and most tellingly of all, money. <laughs> and and so she's living, I guess, in the lap of luxury in British India and then comes back to Australia and... and Yes, she was born in India, but the family came to Australia after her grandfather died and um, they lived on the property, which was called Yugalbar in northern New South Wales, because um, the grandfather had actually left it in his will to a male heir. Neither of his sons wanted to live there. Both of them had properties elsewhere. So it was uh, held by Jessie's mother in trust and Jessie's father managed it with the idea that when Jessie's younger brother um, came of age, he would inherit it. I don't know how influential that particular um, discrimination was because she was very young, but, um, you know, she loved Jugalbar and she, from being a, a baby born in colonial India, in British India, she became a typical Australian bush girl. She was a, a very good at riding, a terrific rider, loved horses. She loved mustering cattle. She was taught to swim by Aboriginal girls, the Bunjalong people who lived on Yugalbar and who always teased her if she couldn't dive as deep as them or swim as far as them so, them. so she became very competitive. Her father, who was a great sportsman, taught her to row uh, so she had, as she remembers it, as absolutely idyllic. Uh, when she was about 12, her the family took, she had a younger sister as well, but the family took the son, Edward, to England to enrol him in school and found a school for Jessie as a sort of sideline. So she went to a very progressive school in Buckinghamshire uh, for two or three years and the combination of that, her Australian bush girlhood and this very progressive school really finished her, as it were, you know, really produced her because she already had a very indomitable will and liked things her own way. Her mother once said to her that she felt like a hen that had hatched a duckling's egg and spent her entire time running round and round the pond while the duckling swam across Uh so she, those beginnings were obviously very, very influential. She was very conservative. Her whole family were conservative. She campaigned against conscription in the First World War. She went to university and at the university she met Kenneth Street, whose father was um, a judge and became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New South Wales. So did Kenneth and so did Kenneth and Jesse's son, um, so there was quite a legal dynasty that happened there. So it was really after she was married um, and in the in the early, say, 1919, post, post First World War, that she became interested in feminism. She joined the Feminist Club in 
Sydney and joined, then joined the National Council of Women. And it was as if um, she she wanted to be able to work. You know, her husband went off to work all morn- every morning. She had, they were living in a tiny flat in Darlinghurst in Sydney. So she made herself some work by joining these clubs, by going to them every day and becoming very active in them, but also very dissatisfied in the course of the 1920s that they weren't radical enough, they weren't reformist enough, which is why she and Linda Littlejohn started the United Associations of Women in 1929, which was certainly very reform-minded and a very political organisation. It says it says in her Wikipedia entry that she had some involvement in the English suffragette movement. Is that right, or is that a bit of an overstretch? Did she get much more interested back in Sydney, as you just explained? It, it is a bit of an overstretch, and she's one of the people who actually fostered that <laughs> that understanding. Yeah. She did have a there was a, a cousin of her father's, um, Winifred Monk Mason was a suffragette and so was Winifred's mother. So in her father's very conservative family were these two women, mother mother and daughter, who joined um, Emmeline Pankhurst's uh, organisation and were extremely active um, suffragettes. Jessie was at school at the time, so she probably, she and she knew them, so she would have known that they were involved. I can't see Jessie at school having had much to do with that and then they came back to Australia. They went back to England again in uh, when Jessie finished university in 1911. So they were only there a couple of months. So she may have sold the, the newspaper, the Votes for Women newspaper, as she claims to have done on street corners. But she... You know, the the real sign that she wasn't heavily involved then is in 1911 there was a huge um, suffragette procession in London and she was in London at the time that that was on and she didn't go to it, so she wasn't there. And yet Winifred Monk Mason and her mother were both part of that procession and so were some leading Australian feminists, including Vita Goldstein So um, and Margaret Fisher, the wife of the then Prime Minister. So... It suggests to me that Jessie was much less involved, but she did work with her cousin in later years to collect suffragette memorabilia. So she she sort of had a, a later relationship. And if we talk about the lead up to this speech in 1944, does she develop into being quite a national figure by 1944? Is she well known as a result of the United Association of, of Women involvement? Uh, Yes, and the United Associations of Women was well known because of her as well, (laughs) because she was very prominent. She was prominent socially because uh, she'd married into the street family, who were very prominent Sydney family. She was well known and she was wealthy. In Sydney circles, she was she had certainly achieved prominence by then. And Lenore, to to clarify that, the streets were her husband was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Is that he right? became chief justice? Her father in law was chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he retired during the nineteen thirties. And then Kenneth Street, her husband, became chief justice in nineteen fifty. So what Jessie's um, greatest claim to prominence in 1944 would have been that in 1943 she stood for for the House of Representatives 
for the seat of Wentworth in Sydney, which had always been and has always been since a blue ribbon um, conservative seat, or actually for a little while it wasn't, but but generally until recent years it was. And uh, she won, she almost won that seat. She lost it on preferences, but she won on first past the post. So it looked like she was actually going to get into Parliament. And at that stage, uh, the 1943 election, federal election, is the first one where women get into the Australian Parliament. So Enid Lyons gets into the House of Representatives and Dorothy Tangney gets into the Senate. And Jessie was next in line and almost made it too. So she was very well known because of that. Plus she um, was involved in anything, everything, and she did a lot of broadcasting. So did Ian Lyons, uh, Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tagney. And so did Linda Littlejohn, Jessie's um, colleague. So the, the the prominence was there and Jessie was campaigning all the time, like for every cause for women, for education and contraception, family planning, the right to sit on juries, um, the right to equal pay. So she was very prominent. And it is a key thing that during the th- 1930s, there was a very even-handed presentation in the press and radio of these issues. So the ABC started in the 1930s and that was a tremendous boon and brings us to this particular point about the 1944 speech because the ABC was also very even-handed and we're also talking about the wartime period when post-war reconstruction was very, very prominent. So the speech, this speech of Jesse's about is it to be back to the kitchen was part of an ABC series that was related to, I almost want to say sponsored by, but the Department of Post-War Reconstruction was very careful to keep itself at arm's length from looking like it sponsored this this radio series. But in fact, the the ABC didn't have many women presenters. Occasionally, Linda Littlejohn broadcast on the ABC and occasionally Jessie did. But in their post-war reconstruction series, they had mostly used men and it started about 1941, 1942. So the war, the idea of post-war reconstruction was prominent all through the war years. By 1944, there was a decision to have this special series that would feature women. So the speakers in that series were Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangney, who'd won their seats in Parliament the year before and made history. Um, They had one woman speaker from every state in Australia. So Jessie was the one from New South Wales. And then they had speakers from Victoria, South Australia and Queensland. So it was a series and the theme of the series was after the war, what next? So you can see then, is it to be back to the kitchen fits into that um, into that notion. And she hits that in the very first words of the speech, doesn't she, with a kind of a what is to be done kind of opening. Uh, there's a good deal of talk just now about what they're going to do after the war with the women. <laughs> Must they be made to return to the home? Are they going to take them out of the factory, the office, off the land? She just sets the scene of what the real issue is. Yes, and you're quite right, Tony. It is a very um, characteristic speech of hers. You know, this is really Jessie in full flight. The power of her public speaking was quite extraordinary. She was a very, she had a great sense of humour and she was a very charming person and 
part of the secret of her her tremendous success, I, I refer to it as associative citizenship because it's gathering people to her to follow a cause, you know, a worthwhile cause. And part of her ability to do that was her her charm. You know, she drew people to her. People followed her enthusiastically. And because there was a cause involved, it wasn't just um, because of her and her personality never intruded on the cause. It was always the cause that was the, the standard. So you're quite right to be inspired by this very important speech because it is her at her best. And both at the opening of it and the, in the closing of it, we get this tremendous sense of hope about human equality. Her campaigns were for the equality of women, but this was part of a much wider idea about humanitarianism, um, what became human rights after the founding of the United Nations in 1945. But up until then, through the League of Nations and through the work of of feminists like Jessie Street, it was about the essential equality of all human beings. And... She rolls right on and and picking up on what you just said then, she uses a theme that was used by I think a lot of activists during the war which is that if we're fighting the Nazis uh, for democracy then we have to win with a sense of true freedom and true democracy. And so, yeah, the, she, she used the kind of what are we fighting for motif next, didn't she? Yes, and you've touched on a very critical thing there because – Immediately before the war, Jessie went to the Soviet Union. It was the first time she'd ever done that. She was travelling overseas with her 18-year-old daughter, Philippa, and she was very interested in, you know, this is a person who had been very conservative, but she was very interested in the socialist experiment, as were many, many people at the time and visitors to the Soviet Union in the 1930s from other countries uh, had this sort of sense of hope that here we we had a system that could um, circumvent depression, economic want, class hatred, almost everything. So Jessie became one of this this band of hope, you know, people who, who thought that with a different um, economic structure we would eliminate a lot of the inequalities between human beings and also to pursue the aims of feminism because in the Soviet Union she noticed that women drove trains and were tram conductors and did all sorts of things that they didn't do in Western countries. The crucial thing that you've touched on is before the war there was in Australia there was a conflation of anti-Nazism and anti-communism as if they were the same thing. Well, Jessie and many others saw them as two totally different things and was thought that was very dangerous for people not to understand that socialism was a very different um, beast than fascism. And, and, and Lenore, she, she goes on and, and actually mentions the Nazis in saying that they are anti-feminist, that the Nazis force women back into the kitchens and that fascism is the ideology of oppression of women. Uh, and I actually read that and wondered how true that was. I guess I had some images of the the Hitler propaganda, which is, is really all I've got to go on, but I didn't get the sense that Nazism was necessarily that, that women didn't have any place in the workforce. Um, well, it is. Jessie also travelled um, in Germany before she went to the Soviet Union, and 
It's the only time that she ever sounded frightened. She wasn't a person who was easily easy to frighten, uh, but she she was travelling in 1938 in August September, and she was almost like just one step ahead of Nazism as, as it was creeping or sweeping through Europe. And everywhere she went, she sought to interview people who could tell her about the position of women. So she actually interviewed the woman who was the head of the Nazi Women's Bureau and and was shown around, you know, what, what they were doing. Now, under Nazism, the idea that we, was prevalent then was that women, you know, it was, it was children, church and kitchen was the place for women the men were the fighters the men were the you know the ubermensch and it was the women's role to keep the home fires burning have the children and support the men so that's fundamental to hitler's germany up until 1938 when the problem of unemployment was so great that women were being drafted back into jobs. Now, Jessie realised this, and even though she hated fascism, she was very fearful of the power of, of Hitler and what was going to happen, and especially while she was in Germany. But she faithfully recorded this this change that because what she was seeing was girls... Uh, were being trained on farms, women were working in factories and offices, and it was quite different from the illusion, but it was only because of the the march forward of, of Hitler's Third Reich needed needed extra workers, especially in munitions factories, especially in they were rearming they were arming very, very fast. So they needed the workers and they brought women back in. But the principle of Hitler's form of fascism, well, Mussolini's as well, and Franco's in Spain, was women belong at home. Yeah. Jessie saw feminism as completely the opposite to fascism. She didn't know that that's why she observed what what she observed in Germany and, as I said, faithfully reported it when she came back and talked about it, but she didn't know that, obviously, that that was the critical need for um armaments was why women were then working but uh, so she contrasted that with socialism where women were free to work in whatever jobs they could they could work in everybody worked everybody got the same wages yeah so she brings back the end of that section i guess with i can't help i can't help thinking that if any attempt is made here after the war to force women back to the home it will be proof that fascism still has strong roots in australia which would have uh, which would have resonated with the audience with in the strongest possible terms i guess in terms of who the enemy was oh yeah but then she has to i guess balance that yeah sorry Yep, go ahead. Oh, I just was going to say, they're fighting words. You were quite right in what you just picked up on. It was exactly that. And and also the the fear and, and the engendered fear, you know, the promoted fear of socialism was very, very powerful. I mean, here we get into the intelligence community, we get into Britain's influence and propaganda in Australia, but Jessie held the flag for socialism. You know, she she thought that that was the way in which women would be free and human beings would have have better opportunities. 
That that must have been fascinating in terms of you know her husband being a future Supreme Court judge and and the Street family history in New South Wales and and her own family history as a conservative family and her joining the Labor Party was there a sense that she was becoming a pariah within her own family and within her own community? Yes, absolutely. And her really indomitable will is clear in this because she was under huge attack. Firstly, she was under the sort of emotional concern of of other members of the family that she was taking this track. She joined the took the step of joining the Labor Party in 1940, and that was a total shock to many, some of her colleagues and almost all of her family. And that was just joining the Labor Party. <laughs> so she never. I don't think she ever was a member of the Communist Party. I never found any evidence of that. Um, and and I'd, I'd confidently say she wasn't a member of the Communist Party. She left the Labor Party in 1949 when the party uh, chiefly was then um, Prime Minister and facing a very difficult election, the one that Menzies won and stayed in power for 16 years in 1949. So the Labor Party was trying to distance itself from the Communist Party then and made sure that no, you couldn't be a member of the Labor Party if you belonged to any organisation that had anything to do with socialism. And um, Jessie had for a long time been a member of an organisation called the Society for Cultural Relations with Russia and she refused to leave that. So she left the Labor Party instead. And this is the nickname Red Jessie, and that's on the Wikipedia entry as well. That you know she was thought of as a communist, which at the time must have been you know a, quite a badge to wear. Yes, and and difficult for her family. Difficult for her family. For the, she had four children, and all four of them found this extremely hard. I think I think towards the end of none of her four children are now alive, but I think towards the end of the lives of certainly the oldest and the youngest, they regretted not trying to understand her better. But in a very conservative family, and because you know her her relationship with her husband is fascinating because of this, because he didn't stop her doing any of this. And I remember having a conversation with her older daughter, Belinda, once where I said exactly this, you know, Belinda, this is so puzzling about how your parents got along. You know, one very conservative Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, one very radical woman. And um, Belinda just turned around and said to me with a wry smile, mother had her own money. Her <laughs> mother also had her independence and her own mind. Um, and those three things, she thought all women should have that their independence of mind, the independence of means, and independence of will. Well, that independence of will topic actually drags us into the next section of the speech where she's just talked about how women shouldn't be forced back to the kitchen. But then the next one, she sort of almost turns it around and says, but women have got to be allowed back to the kitchen if they want to do that. You know, that there should be some ability to support women who want to work on the home front and go back to the kitchen and live domestically, but that life needs to be made easier for these women. 
Yes, and she had very good examples in her two daughters, both of whom had families and didn't work outside the home. So it, it isn't that Jessie was remote from, uh, well, she herself was quite remote from um, the house, I must say. She, in raising her children, had had uh, domestic servants. So in the 20s and 30s, you know, people with the means and even some people without much means had help in the home, especially when they had young children. But Jessie's um, daughters didn't. So she understood that and she understood that it is a choice that women make and that families make. And she also understood that the only way that she got to lead an independent life is because she had help at home that she could trust. She had domestic servants who ran her house and she had a nurse for her children until they were old enough not to need that anymore in whom she had complete faith. And it's that point. It's not just having the money to employ domestic servants. It's having people to help you that you have faith in. So she did understand that. And and she wasn't uh, um, blinded by her class position in, in any way. That accusation is sometimes made, but uh, she got out and about far too much for that. Well, it seems to me that it's more that she said, she says that domestic life needs to be less of a prison. And as you say, she's not blinded by her own experience. It seems more that her kind of experience in Russia and maybe her socialist ideals inform the next little bit where she talks about community kitchens and community care, basically that people should be able to do their laundry out together and, and that people should cook together and, and it would mean that there's, I guess, less isolation for women at home. Yes, and this is 80 years or so ago. These are very um, uh, forward-thinking ideas, aren't they? And a lot of mothers now would probably argue that they still don't have a choice. They get to work, but they have to work. <laughs> it's uh, not too many families can afford to uh, uh, raise children and not have both parents working, at least you know part-time, usually for the mother. So it it is about choice and towards the end of the speech she does summarise it that very neatly that she's not saying that you should or shouldn't be in the kitchen but that the choice for women, that women have an equal right to a choice as men, men do and the reasons why they didn't and the reasons why they still don't uh, are profoundly important because we can't really think of ourselves in humane terms <laughs> until we know the reason for that. And that, that is a brilliant part of the speech and um, she says that and then she talks about the, the need for more women in public life and she talks about industry and how the war effort has been sustained by women um, and therefore the peace effort why wouldn't we want to maximise the peace effort as well? It's it's really beautifully eloquent stuff. Yes, it is. And when you think of the hope that this speech represents, the at the time Curtin, John Curtin was Prime Minister and having been someone that people couldn't, you know, didn't really think that he would make such a great Prime Minister, but many people on both sides of politics would put him in, our, in Australia's top Prime Ministers. 
and he his leadership in the crisis of war and then his death in the last year of war just before the peace were really very very poignant i mentioned the department of post-war reconstruction before and made the pointed out the connection of this speech to that department because it is all about hope it's you know people suffered through the war and had to have hope about what would happen after the war and uh, where that hope came from and it's so much reflected in jesse's speech is that they will have a say in in their country they will have a say in the government of it so the the department of post-war reconstruction which um, was headed uh, by Nugget Coombs and uh, the minister responsible was Chifley, was an extraordinary democratic kind of uh, example in that it involved lots and lots of people, for instance, this ABC series, and uh, which went on, as I said, for a couple of years and brought people from all walks of life, mostly men but some women, to have their say, you know, to say what they would like to see happen after the war. I think that's one of the saddest contrasts now is that we can't imagine doing that. We can't imagine a government Mm. that would want our opinion, (laughs) a government that wouldn't be persuading us but would be asking us, what do you think things should be like? So hope was very, very high in, in this period. And it was almost, uh, again, I guess it was a socialist imagination that talks about poverty and and how poverty shouldn't be tolerated after the war, that there needs to be a mindset change. If everyone has fought for this thing, this peace, then there must be greater inclusiveness. And this, and this is the point in the speech where, to me, it doesn't seem to be just a women's issue speech. She's now branching out into a greater vision for society. Yes, I think that's such an important point because the everything she's saying about human beings' equality, everything she's saying about women is in an outlook where the equality of human beings is the basic principle. It's um, got its tragic side, of course, when we think how far we are now. I wonder what would happen if a speech like this was made now. Uh, would Would people understand it um would they see where she was coming from for someone to talk about a democratic free society where women are at liberty to choose whether they'll have home life or work outside the home i mean would anybody really understand that now we we seem fundamentally to have i was going to say forgotten but i don't think i don't think people have forgotten but lost the way to influence a democracy and it's not a democracy if people are not shaping it and then there's a very 1944 type end to the speech i guess when when you realize that one of the major problems for women having entered the workforce is that men don't want them to stay there because they're doing the jobs just as well but more cheaply <laughs> so that that's a, so that, so that's one of the big issues isn't it that she has to deal with in, at the latter part of the speech yes exactly i mean that is such a huge problem isn't it it's why trade unions were on the side of equal pay because otherwise it's undercutting the wages of of men. So equal pay is actually very, very important to the labour movement Um, and it does take 
um, the trade unions a while to catch on to this, but they've certainly caught up to it before the war and during the war. And it is a very important point. And, and plus, you know, Jesse's concerned about the principle of that too. If, if someone is doing work of equal worth, why are they being paid less? Uh, it's a, a, one of the most passionate themes of her, of her, as I say, many speeches. I find it interesting too, like about how what voices can tell us. You know, it it's terrific to be able to hear how someone spoke because I was trying to sort of give a picture before of how compelling Jessie Street could be, both in speaking in public and speaking on the radio. But I'm so interested now that people are have. Are paying more attention to this, and I noticed there's a recent PhD thesis at ANU written by put together by um, Catherine Fisher, and it, she's titled it "The Public Voice of Australian Women Broadcasters," and it's in the 20, 1923 to fifty six period, and she goes into looking at the tone of the voice. Uh, she, she thinks, Jessie, in, in this series of speeches that we're discussing, she thinks that the speeches given by Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangney in their, their election speeches she's actually talking about are probably more successful than Jessie's because it, when Jessie is broadcasting, she's a little bit hesitant as if she's sort of, you know, reading from a script whereas when she's speaking in public, she's never hesitant. I really like to think that we can study study voice like that and understand the power of the voice, and I guess you do too, or you wouldn't be a podcaster. Well, that is, and to do podcasts on speeches, and, <laughs> and I am going to play that little snippet of audio that I think you might have unearthed, Lenore, the one from... 1945 and the United Nations period and you do get to hear her speak there but to some extent I feel like that's an unfair representation of Jessie just because it feels like she's it's not a very prepared speech it's not something where she's thought about the punchiness of it and it, and it kind of rolls more like a, a radio monologue um, do you feel that about that audio I do and I think it's very sad that we don't have the recordings of the speech that we're discussing, for instance, and in fact the series with the other the women from each state of Australia. It's that is a great pity, and it, it suggests the problem in. Well, again, I'm getting back to the point of Jesse's point of democracy and equality, but the discussions recently about the National Archives of Australia needing funding and appealing to people to donate money to them so that they can digitise records so that they're not lost, that absolutely makes my blood run cold <laughs> because the National Archives, often referred to as a cultural institution like the National Library or the National Gallery, it is not a cultural institution. The National Archives is the government record keeper for the for the federal government, for the Australian government, and therefore it is a very important element of our democracy. And it suggests to me that we have moved a lot, as I said before, we've moved a long way from understanding or having fostered our role in our democracy when we don't understand the difference between the government record keeper, who that's accountability. Accountability is fundamental to representative democratic government. 
And the accountability is meant to be because the records of government have to be kept so that we can look at them. And the point here is that these ABC recordings, and especially because they're so closely connected to the Department of Post-War Reconstruction, are not available. Like I'd love to think that somewhere in the in the National Archives, in their ABC collection, somebody will one day find one of these, a recording of one of these speeches. But I'm pretty, yeah. pretty sure they're not there and that they have just disintegrated and not been copied. But this is critical for us to not just understand the past of Australian democracy, but its future. And Lenore, you'll be pleased to know that I'm going to do my little bit and re-record the speech for this episode. There will be a reading by an actor. I'm currently trying to find one. Um, But certainly there will be a a re-reading of it at least. Um, And we do get a bit of a sense of her voice in some of the other clips. But to think of her beautiful ability to synthesise at the end of a speech, and I'll just read it for her. To put this in a nutshell, I believe that in a democratic free society, women should be at liberty to choose whether they will take up home life or work outside the home, that men and women should receive equal pay and equal opportunity, that home life should be made less of a lie and the burden of raising a family be lightened. If we can face these peacetime problems with the spirit of determination and conciliation with which we're facing our war problems, we may hope to solve them. I mean, that's a big, rousing, this is what I've said and I'm going to say it again beautifully and concisely um, to take us to the end. Yes, that is, as you say, a terrific ending of a speech and does suggest the power and capacity of, of the woman and the limitations of the time that she didn't become a public figure or, you know, a, a, a public figure in the way that she hoped to be, for instance, uh, to be a member of parliament. Yeah, she did, however, become a, a, a member of our delegation to the UN in 1945. They chose 10 Australians to be part of the building, I guess, of the new post-war world. Yes, the member countries of the United Nations or of what was to become the United Nations all sent delegations to San Francisco early in 1945 to the United Nations, the meeting to found the United Nations, or conference to found the United Nations, which went on for a couple of months. And uh, in uh, the, in Australia's delegation, Jessie was the only woman, and that was a very important public recognition. recognition. She'd been on a few government committees before then. A lot of people think that this was... Um, Curtin's uh, kind of thank you to her for almost taking Wentworth in 1943 because that 1943 was the sweeping election that reinforced his um, his government. But he certainly chose the right person, uh, partly because she was a connector, as I say. She was an associative citizen and and she had also been twice to meetings of the League of Nations, which was, I was going to say a hotbed of feminism, but the League of Nations between 1919 when it was founded and its 1938 meeting, which was the last one it had or the last um, General Assembly, the women's involvement of that and the way that women use that as a sort of world 
parliament in which to hear women's issues and to learn about the standards that women had achieved or the progress they'd made in some countries and then take it back to their own country. It was, a, it was humanitarian work that was carried over into the United Nations. But because the League of Nations was seen to have failed because it didn't prevent a Second World War, which was the reason it was founded, everything about the United Nations was um, set to dissociate it from the League of Nations. So unfortunately, a lot of the very significant work of the League of Nations, and I highlight there the humanitarian work, had to be um, smuggled into the United Nations, as it were, and somehow humanitarianism became human rights in a very legalistic sense. But Jessie is, and this was how I first became interested in her because I wanted to study an Australian woman, woman who was involved in both the League of Nations and the United Nations to see what sort of transfer there had been. And I have to say that was rather a long time ago and um, I have lived with Jessie ever since. <laughs> and was she responsible for having gender discrimination outlawed within the Charter of the United Nations or is that an overstretch of her involvement? No, that's, that's, um, it, it's definitely not an overstretch, Tony. It's a very, very important part. There are uh, some women leaders from South American countries, Central and South American countries too, and a woman called Bodil Begtrup from Denmark who all had some involvement with the League of Nations and they were the ones who were actually able to get together in San Francisco in 1945 and campaign and lobby very, very hard to make sure that women weren't uh, well, that women at least had the recognition in the United Nations that they'd had at the League of Nations because through, again, through the same sort of intervention in 1919, it was written into the covenant of the League of Nations that women would be uh, engaged in an equal on an equal basis with men in the League of Nations. Now, that was observed more often in the breach than in, than in the practice but there was a woman head of section in the League of Nations. So these women wanted to make sure that at least in the United Nations uh, Charter that the same equality was written in. And boy, was that a long, hard battle, but they did it. And all of those women put Jessie at the head of how that was achieved. So it isn't an overstretch to say that. And if we're looking at Jessie Street's post-speech life, I guess the other thing that often gets mentioned is her role in the 1967 referendum. Can you, can you briefly tell us about that? Yes, and that is a very important part of, of her work, again, with a lot of other people. And really that started in 1956, 1957, when um, Jessie was overseas and in London and the British Anti-Slavery Society was assisting... Aboriginal organisations who were attempting to get the Australian government to give them greater recognition. And Jessie came back to Australia with a mission from the British Anti-Slavery Society to investigate conditions of Aboriginal people in Australia, which she did. Um, and travelled around Australia, Port Hedland, Darwin, Alice Springs, Kalgoorlie, provided this very comprehensive report. And at the, at the same time, of course, met a lot of the people who were 
working in state-based Aboriginal organisations and working to try to get a national organisation of, of Indigenous people. And that was a very profound eye-opener for Jessie herself and a very big change for Australia too. Um, through that work, Jessie met, for instance, Faith Bandler, and the two of them were definitely a redoubtable couple. Uh, and so Faith maintains that it was Jessie's idea that that the thing that needed to happen was the Australian Constitution needed to be changed, to have two changes, two amendments made to it that would um, lead towards the equality of, of Aboriginal people. And so that was a, a vote yes referendum. And, you know, any student of Australian politics would tell you that in Australia referendums are very hard to win, but that one wasn't. But it was the only referendum that was ever developed from the grassroots. It was a people's referendum. And it, the reason why they started working on that change in 1957 and it didn't happen until 1967 is that's how long the Menzies government resisted allowing there to be a refer referendum. And the persistence and the hard work it meant that more and more people supported the organisations and the idea of having a, a, a national organisation of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it was, it, it had to win. Like it had, that's why it had the biggest, I think 97% of, uh, of voters said yes to it. Uh, no other referendum in Australia has ever won that. And it was people like Jesse and people, wonderful people like, Faith Bandler. Faith Bandler once said to me, Jessie just didn't see colour. I'm not sure that I think not seeing colour is all that good a thing, but I can see what she meant, <laughs> that, that seeing all human beings as equal to us and as deserving as we think we are ourselves is an amazing vision to have and I think that is the way that Jessie's looked at looked at the world and when that 1967 referendum happened she was towards the end of her life i think she died in 1970 was she in a state to kind of enjoy that triumph just to, to feel as though she'd had a defining political achievement no. and isn't that tremendously sad she certainly had the recognition of colleagues and and you know, colleagues who persuaded her to write her own memoir, for instance, the book Truth or Repose that appeared in 1960, published in 1966. But really the 60s were not good for Jessie and Jessie wasn't good for the 60s either. She was quite ill by that time and and I guess this is another thing that makes me so interested in her times and in, in her story because most biographers are very worried about writing a hagiography, you know, making their subject seem like a saint. The only worst thing that a biographer can do, as I discovered, is uh, finding you don't really like your subject <laughs> and wondering why you've got to know all this about them and, and you're not really approving of the things they, they do. But it's like anybody. It's a life and it's a life that's got mistakes in it and has got unlikable things in it and has got amazing things and tender things and emotional things and in Jessie's case 
she was so connected to what her times needed, so connected to the times that that's what makes it a model life to me. And by the 1960s, her illness meant that she was becoming disconnected. Um, and and that Ill- what was that illness? Well, she had she had some f- physical uh, uh, illness too, but she was starting. She had dementia towards the end of her life, so she wasn't really recognizing what was happening. And I think it's a problem of the book Truth or Repose is that her dementia was at play there too, because there's a, and that's why the family commissioned me to do a new edition or attempt to do a new edition of that that was published in 2004 to correct the errors. I I did that job as if I were her research assistant and the publisher's editor that she should have had for truth or repose (laughs) and it meant correcting a lot of mistaken facts, dates and so on. And I like the idea that you just were her, like you went on the journey she went on. You went to San Francisco and you went to New York and you kind of, you lived a trip of being Jessie Street. It must have been amazing. Well, again, I think that um, at the moment I feel I could probably say all the things you shouldn't do as a biographer, (laughs) but that was one of the things that was very good to do. It was a a very exciting thing and I was enabled to do it because of, managing to uh, complete the new edition of of her memoir of of Truth or Repose and that did give me the ability to do that and uh, it was extraordinary to travel where she travelled to and, and especially because places that she had first gone to that she absolutely loved like Prague for instance before uh, she first went to Prague before the war and to Budapest in some cases, I stayed in the same hotels that she'd stayed in. In San Francisco, I stayed in the Sir Francis Drake Hotel, which is the hotel that the Australian delegation stayed in in 1945. It was completely wonderful. <laughs> um, and if mm. if you could have more sort of corridors and avenues for a biographer to wander down, I think I think I've probably wandered down an awful lot of them, <laughs> and that was one. <laughs> Well, Lenore, it's been so wonderful hearing this story. I mean, the speech, do you, do you regard it as a great speech? I get the sense you do. <laughs> I do regard it as a great speech, and, and especially, as I say, when we see it in its context, uh, in, in its democratic context, and the way that you've uh, highlighted the, those parts of it, yes, I do think it's a great speech. If we had all her speeches, we could then judge whether it's the greatest. She made some very good ones. I would have just loved to hear it in her voice. Absolutely. Well, we're going to do the best we can with a, an actor's rendition in a moment. Uh, when's your biography come out, Lenore? Well, uh, that's a very good question. The publisher would love to answer it. Um, my deadline for submitting the manuscript is September. So with a bit of luck, um, that would mean it will come out in 2023. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we're all looking forward to it. It's a life that should be examined and uh, I've loved having you on the podcast. Thanks, Lenore. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, Lenore, and I loved our chat. There were a few technical difficulties to plough through, but we did it. 
I said at the outset that this is a podcast that has joined the legions that have Patreon pages. That is a place where you can make a monthly contribution to keep an artistic project that you like going. I'm doing one for Strong Songs. How good is Strong Songs as a podcast? And I do want to thank people who become members. We're up to 14. So thank you to Cam McDonald, Grant Sampierre, Robert Clough, Richard Lindsay, Paul Ritchie, Jared Powell, Ed McManus, and thank you to Dan Last, Paul Wegard, and Luke Smith, who avoided the unknown brambles of Patreon to just make a credit card donation. Thank you to you guys as well. And it was a lot of guys this week. Maybe the Jesse Street episode will bring a little bit of gender balance to the Patreon page. Speech of the week. Well, we've talked about it all through the episode, but in 1944, there was an ABC series where women were asked to give an address on the question of post-war reconstruction. And on the 17th of April, 1944, the microphone fell to Jessie Street and she delivered this stirring speech. Is it to be back to the kitchen? As I mentioned in the interview, there is no surviving audio and so I asked prominent Australian actor Blazy Best to do a reading of it. You may know her from the TV series Between Two Worlds. She's also a regular at the Belvoir Theatre Company. And she's a close friend of Kate Mulvaney, who was such a great guest on this podcast in episode five. So thank you, Blazy, for doing this read and bringing to life this powerful and important moment in Australian history. Is it to be back to the kitchen? There is a good deal of talk just now about what they are going to do after the war with the women. Must they be made to return to the home? Are they going to take them out of the factory, the office, off the land? To me, this sort of discussion is very disquieting. It makes me think we've already forgotten the reasons why we're fighting this war. Aren't we fighting for liberty, for democracy and to eradicate fascism and Nazism in every form. Surely we don't mean liberty and democracy for men only. Indeed, I hope women will enjoy the liberty which they have helped to win and be permitted to choose what they want to do. Do you remember that one of the first things the Nazis did when they came to power was to put women out of the professions, out of the factories... They barred the doors of the universities to all but a few women, and they severely limited women's opportunities for any kind of higher education. By these methods, the Nazis forced women back to the home, back to the kitchen. I can't help thinking that if any attempt is made here after the war to force women back to the home, it will be proof that fascism still has strong roots in Australia. Women should not be forced to return to the home, but they should be free to return there if they wish to. I don't like what's implied in the suggestion that women will have to be forced back into the home. That's a slight not only on home life, but also on the work of bearing and rearing children. Don't you agree? The greatest happiness for many women is to care for a home and to raise a family. The trouble in the past has been that society has failed to make it possible for all the women who wanted to have homes and raise families to do so. And while we're on the subject of women in the home, I think that this life could be made attractive to many more women by developing amenities and customs that render home less of a prison than it is to many women with young families. 
Just think of the prospects of family life as lived under present conditions to a clever, energetic, bright young girl. Soon after marriage, there will be a baby, and from then on she cannot move unencumbered. The more babies, the harder she has to work, and the greater her restrictions. If we want more women to choose home life, we must make home life less hard. But how can we do this? Well, we can have creches and kindergartens and supervised playgrounds where children can be left in safe surroundings. Then we must change many of our conventions. Why should a woman do all the work in the home? Why can't we, for example, have community kitchens and laundries? If a woman wants to work outside the home, why shouldn't she? Let her be free to choose. There's just as much and more reason to believe that the best interests of her family and of society will be served by giving a woman a free choice than by expecting her to adhere to a lot of worn-out conventions. Anyway, the contribution that women can make to public life through the professions or in industry is important. Women in the past have been very much hampered by their inexperience in these spheres. They haven't had the opportunity to qualify for representative positions or positions of control and direction. In other words, because of the lack of opportunity to gain experience, they're denied the opportunity of exerting any influence in framing policies or directing public affairs. I am pretty sure that many women will remain in industry after the war, for we shall be in need of more skilled hands rather than less. Remember. We couldn't exert a full war effort until women were absorbed into industry. Therefore, how can we exert a full peace program without making use of their services? Everyone knows how short we are of houses and hospitals and offices, of furniture, of bathroom and kitchen fittings, of curtains, wallpaper, clothing, foodstuffs. In fact, hundreds of commodities. Can you imagine the tremendous amount of work that will be required? Not only have we to make up the deficiency of the war years. But we must provide all these amenities on a much larger scale after the war. There were large numbers of people before the war who had no homes, not even enough to eat. Hospital accommodation was inadequate, and so on. Although all these things could have been provided for a few million pounds, we believed we could not afford to better these conditions. It took a total war to show us what we could do with our own resources. If we can raise money for war, we can raise it for peace, surely. It would be inexcusable in the future to condemn people to live under the conditions so many endured before the war. Why is there so much opposition to women remaining in industry? The secret isn't far to seek. It's simply that they got paid less. They're cheap labour. Certainly not, as so many have alleged, because they're weaker or less efficient. Unfortunately, because their labour is cheaper. Women not only threaten the wage standards of men workers, but they also threaten the standard of living of all workers. The obvious and just way to avoid this is to give equal pay to men and women. To put this in a nutshell, I believe that in a democratic, free society, women should be at liberty to choose whether they will take up home life or work outside the home. That men and women should receive equal pay and equal opportunity. That home life should be made less of a tie, and the burden of raising a family be lightened. If we can face these peacetime problems with the spirit of determination and conciliation with which we're facing our war problems, we may hope to solve them. Thank you, Blazy Best. 
for capturing a little of the essence of Jesse Street. Thank you, Lenore Coltart, for telling us so much about the life of Jesse Street. Thank you to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados, greenskinavocados.com.au. Thank you to the one-off and recurring financial supporters of Speakola. The Patreon link is in the show notes. Thank you to David Bridie for the theme music. Otherwise, it is a team of one here on the creative and production sides of Speakola. And I look forward to doing the next episode shortly. I think it's going to be Gabrielle Sterling, the Republican electoral returns official who gave that amazing speech. Somebody's going to get killed, he said, in early December when the big lie was being peddled about the US election and of course with the events of January 6th it was all too prescient so Gabrielle Sterling is to be the next guest on the Speakola podcast that one coming to you hopefully in a fortnight thanks for listening